welcome to Systematically. We're still doing Apocalypse Editions. Today, we have Robin here. Hi, Robin. Hey, John. I caught you mid-sip. Apologies. Sure did. <laughs> That's a podcast faux pas. Uh, and we also have Brian. Brian still with us. Hey, Brian. Hi. Two in a row. Wow. I know. It's huge. Uh, Brian bought himself a fancy stand and a new microphone. So, uh, he's, he's signaling his seriousness. Yeah. So if, he sound, means, if he sounds bad guys, it's his fault now. That's true. He, he set it, it up. It was always my fault, but yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we have as our guests, we have recent guest Eric Mabry. Hey, Eric. Hey, John. It's good to be back with you. Remind everybody who you are, what you do with yourself. Oh, yes. So uh, my name is Eric Mabry. I am an assistant professor of systematic theology at Christ the King Seminary. And uh, I specialize in Christology um, and other systematic areas of theology. So it's really good to be back with you guys. Thanks, man. Thanks for being here. And we also have a uh, first-time guest, Joe Mudd. Hey, Joe. How you doing? Hey, John. First time, long time. Long time <laughs> listener. I'm so glad. Uh, tell us yeah. a little bit about who you are. So I'm an associate professor in the Department of Religious Studies at Gonzaga University, and I specialize in liturgical theology. And that's going to be relevant because today we are talking about spiritual communion, a topic that's floated through uh, various theologies, Twitter recently. And um, there was some sense, uh, particularly coming from Eric is the one who really put the show together. Uh, we'll give him a producer credit. He, uh, Eric, like me, has a uh, low tolerance for people being wrong on the internet, though he intervenes less often than I do. And um, he he was talking about some frustrations with how spiritual communion was being invoked, um, but also some uh, frustrations with, let's call them contexts in which it's not being invoked. So, Eric, tell me about your your sense of the conversation and uh, what what you felt was lacking. Sure. Yeah. Oh, wait. I, hold on. I'm jumping the gun because we have something very important to do that's not important. I was about to say, You're right. man. You're right. I, well, I'm excited <laughs> to get into the meat of this thing because it seems timely and like you guys are experts and it's going to be great. But first, Chief Frivolity Officer Robin. Oh, hey, guys. I was a little worried there. I mean, before I we jump, apologize. Jump, I know our listeners were just like, they were getting their hearts light before their hearts got heavy. And just like, <laughs> people need that right now, John. No, All right. So, continuing our kind of pandemic theme of frivolity, today's, questions, today's question is I'm asking everyone, um, I mean, we can start with um, our guests today to make them, to really put them on the spot. Mm. Guys, I just want to know what is your favorite type of bean? and why how much time do you have <laughs> about 45 seconds each we're not talking coffee beans right <laughs> no 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 we're we're talking mm. like legumes legumes yeah. all right okay. yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna go out there this this is a there's always some debate i think on the status of this particular legume whether it's bean or not bean um, the chickpea or the garbanzo bean is my go-to favorite. It, it's part of the family Fabaceae, like the Fabas, which are the beans. So I'll allow it. Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> much. We have, we have a determination. Yeah, that is the go-to. It can take many forms, from hummus to curry. It's a very versatile bean. <laughs> nice. 
I'm just so glad the phrase versatile bean got set on my show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm afraid mine's pretty plain. I just very traditional. I, I guess it's because I'm a, I'm a poor boy from Texas and uh, I, the black bean, man, like uh, to me, you could just do so many different things with it and, and uh, it balances out all of your Tex-Mex dishes and you can do them on their own. You can do them in rice, you can mix them with meat. And uh, yeah, I, I got to go with, uh, go with black beans for sure. Boy, I, I'm, I'm awfully torn. Uh, part of me wants to be a kind of esoteric hipster and, and, and stretch the doctrinal uh, definition here and, and go with the, the green lentil. Um, though uh, uh, a, a black lentil is also a handy thing, though not as not as versatile, of course, as a chickpea. Um, but I, I gotta say, in terms of beans consumed in my lifetime, I keep going back to the black bean. I gotta put a vote in Eric's column. Uh, and there's a lot, you know, black bean burger. You can make a black bean hummus. There's just a lot you can do with a black bean. So it has it scores points in the versatility column. Um, but also just well prepared black beans are satisfying. They're they're not just a kind of nutritional staple. They're really they're a palate staple. They really hold down a dish. I'm gonna go black bean. I'm gonna run with my man Joe Mudd here and go uh, garbanzo gang. Uh, oh, uh, chick, chickpeas. Yeah, that's I I think he's right. But uh, that they're they're versatile and they're relatively high in protein and delicious. Uh, but I suppose just so I don't repeat what he said, um, uh, soybeans like edamame, I really like, and I had a friend in undergrad who we convinced for like a month that it was pronounced edamame and that was really, really funny. So I'll stick with that one too. That's adorable. Edamame. Edamame. We have a children's book that we read sometimes that's, uh, edamame (laughs) and edapapa. And baby Aww. bean sesame. Oh, so, delightful. Cute. All right. Well, um, oh, also on the coffee bean thing, I just wanted to clarify too. Coffee beans are named for their resemblance to beans, but they're actually seeds. So that's from why. The coffee, from the coffee cherry. Yeah. Which so that's why had, they don't. If you've never had beans. cascara tea, uh, <sighs> which is made from dried uh, coffee cherry, you should really try that out. It's pretty cool. Uh, yes. There was a it is co- delicious. Collectivo in uh, in Milwaukee, which is a coffee roaster. They were also they've got into all kinds of stuff. Their their bakery is really good if you're ever in Milwaukee. Um, don't travel there tacos. now. Their breakfast tacos. <laughs> breakfast They're... tacos are amazing. Some of the really solid scones, uh, yeah. but which is a kind of a I'm a bit of a picky uh, scone eater. But that's for a different show. Uh, but they really? made really they made a saison with a uh, cascara mm-hmm. tea that was uh, a, a culinary delight. Ooh. Anyway, that's the whole story. Well, I'm, uh, I mean, just to round this off, I'm actually, I don't really like beans. I mean, I like chickpeas and I like lentils, but I don't really like beans. Actually, that's the, like, that's the thing about Tex-Mex. I just, I can't do Tex-Mex. I don't really like beans. However. Good luck in the coming apocalypse. Oh, thank you. I know. The present well, apocalypse. Uh, you know, we all have to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Um, but you know what I really like, guys? What's that? Baked beans. Oh, mm, yes. um, I mean, it goes on toast. You can eat it for any meal of the day. Sometimes there's bacon bits in it. 
true subject of the um, queen speaking here oh yeah, yeah. I was gonna say that's, very, like, very that's a very british thing yeah goes so well with tomato anyway so i'm gonna lift up the navy bean here oh. you know on its own like not impressive not an interesting color not even particularly large but like baked for hours and hours and hours on end and inside it turns out there was all sorts of goodness what do you know that was poetic. There's a there's a pothead joke to be made there. I just can't get that off my shoulder. Anyway, uh, <laughs> solid frivolity, Robin. Deeply frivolous. I'm so impressed. You just you outdo yourself episode after episode, and I well, I'm in your debt. Okay, so let's go back, Eric. You had beef with the conversation around spiritual communion. So walk us through where where you're coming from why you felt compelled to come back on our show and uh, endure this nonsense. Sure. Well, I mean, the way I see it, I think there are basically two extremes uh, that I'm seeing people uh, fall into. On the one hand, uh, there's definitely, you know, the crowd that's sort of, you know, Eucharist or bust, and uh, we will go to mass um, no matter what, um, and no matter what the situation or the conditions or what have you. And, uh, so I think there's there's maybe a um, there's a kind of a sacramental maximalism that I mean, you know, I, I don't want to make individual accusations, but at least in terms of an extreme, uh, St. Thomas would actually categorize as a kind of a mode of superstition because for him, uh, superstition is an excess of the act of worship. So I think on the one hand, you have this sacramental maximalism where it's just so committed um, and has no way of sort of conceiving um uh, a eucharistic act outside of the context of the physical celebration of the mass so i, I want to i want to call that kind of sacramental maximalism and can you can you briefly sort of ventriloquize the the argument that's being put forward for that oh man <laughs> sorry i, know I, don't, painful, I don't know but... i don't know if I'm, i don't know if i'm qualified to sort of put, put that forward I, I mean on a on a softer note i think I'll just be honest. I'm, I'm a little sympathetic, right? In at least in terms of um, mass is really important to me. The mass is really important to my family, and um, you know it. It, it is uh, a little bit of an Olympic sport to get get my family to to mass, and uh, uh, so it, it means a lot for us to be there. And um, uh, I, I consider, you know, devotion to the presence of our Lord in the sacrament of the Eucharist to be sort of one of the staples or centers, you know, my faith. So I I have to confess when I initially saw, and of course not the local thing is actually from Rome. I mean, when I saw the announcement that the Pope himself had, you know, uh, asked that there, there no longer be public uh, celebrations of the Eucharist, it, it took me aback. I mean, it, it really did kind of, it shocked me a little bit, I, I guess. And, uh, and so in, in that respect, I think, I think a lot of it's motivated by shock, but I think, you know, there are a couple of different avenues that are available to you after you've experienced shock. And I mean, one of those is, um, one of those is fear. So, so I think that, uh, I think people are afraid that somehow, uh, their what has come to sort of be constitutive of their identity as Catholics has somehow been taken from them and taken from them by the very people 
that in their understanding are supposed to be safeguarding this uh, sacred obligation for one, and then also this this sacred feature of their devotional life. Um, and uh, I, but I I think I can see how people would like not just emotionally arrive here, but logically arrive here, right? Because if you're if you're used to the sacrament, you have the sign, and you also have the inward spiritual graces, right? And those usually go together. And I, I, I think some of the logic here of the position of people who are saying, no, we still need the mass is that they're, I mean, when I try to understand it, I think the logic that they're saying is that the sign or the sacrament is necessary to also receive the inward spiritual graces. Yeah. That would be the logic of, of their argument, I think, and probably what you would have to tackle if you want to say that they're wrong. Sure. I, I mean. Yeah, I think in the in the logical mode that that's right. I, I'm not I'm not sure how many actually go that far though. I mean, even and and I want to be very clear about this because this is sort of on the other side uh, of the extremes. You know, St. Thomas notes that uh, spiritual communion alone is imperfect in some sense, at least from a Eucharistic standpoint. Now, I'm going to distinguish Eucharistic spiritual communion from uh, crystal, what I'm going to call Christological spiritual communion, just like uh, St. Thomas does. But at least from the Eucharistic standpoint, he does say, look, this is imperfect because they are supposed to be together. And, and, I, and I, I think that that's, that's very important. And so I, I think actually on the other side, you have on this one extreme, uh, some kind of relationship which says, well, you should never, ever sort of have these apart. And this attempt to kind of tear these two apart is a violence that needs to be resisted. Uh, but on the other hand, I think you have a um, kind of a, a, an odd application of a spiritual ex opere operato where uh, we sort of spiritual, spiritual communion. And, and, and what, is that, what does that Latin phrase mean, Eric? Oh, right. Yes. Sorry. Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, in, the, in the Middle Ages going into the Reformation period, uh, the, the terms themselves are older than the, the Reformation debates, but uh, there's two phrases that come out uh, to distinguish um, to distinguish the role that the minister has in confecting the sacrament. So ex opere operato is one side of that conversation that affirms that given that all the sacramental conditions are fulfilled, the sacrament will affect its, as Robin was just saying, its spiritual signification. It will accomplish the spiritual signification uh, irrespective of the moral uh, condition of the sacramental minister. On the other hand, you have the uh, ex opere operantis, which puts the burden on a little bit more on the minister's side. And so there are certain uh, moral or maybe even ecclesi ecclesial impediments that would uh, compromise uh, the spiritual benefits of a sacramental celebration because of the condition of the minister. So uh, what I see on this other side of things is uh, maybe less attention than would be ideal to the sort of incomplete nature of this spiritual act. And so there's kind of this, um, uh, I'm going to call this one Augustinian maximalism. Oh, okay, nice. <laughs> Um, where, you know, Augustine, as everyone knows, has this just, just beautiful, deep, deep 
ecclesial emphasis with respect to the Eucharist. Um, and it's where so much of, you know, the Lubach's understanding of the Eucharist making the church sort of comes from. Uh, but I, I think there's a temptation there to think that insofar as we are already the body of Christ, then we are kind of of ourselves this sort of ongoing spiritual act of Eucharistic communion. And I, I think it's really important between these two extremes, the sacramental maximalism and this Augustinian maximalism, to hold the center, um, however not numerous, and say that, uh, know that to, to make a spiritual act of Eucharistic communion requires both intention and desire. And since it involves desire, I, there's a distance, like there's an absence that we're longing for and that we're committed to resuming, hopefully sooner rather than later, but that, that, that requires an intentionality in order to uh, participate actively in the in spiritual community. Joe, is there anything you'd want to add to that characterization of the, the sort of two extremes? Or are you seeing some some third uh, position out there? Or, you know, I would, yeah, I'd is want there anything to, you'd want to comment? Yeah, I don't want to pick up on the last thing Eric said about absence. Um, historically, for a whole range of reasons, there have been periods where the faithful have not been able to um, receive uh, the sacrament, um, whether for, for plague, I think these things have happened before, distance, availability of ministers, uh, and that's also the case today, right? So there are lots of uh, people in the church who are not able to receive weekly Eucharistic communion. <clears throat> so in that respect, the, the situation is not uh, new. It is new in the sense, as Eric indicated, that it's church leaders who are saying, don't participate, don't, don't uh, come to the church. So that, that I think, raises the, this alarm for people. And so some folk have um, presented this change in policy as reflecting a cultural paradigm. Um, of a kind of death-dealing culture. And this is, here's one more example of contemporary secular culture's obsession with death. And so we're going to allow death to tell us what to do in this instance, too. Mm -hmm. And the church is falling into this trap. I think that's, a, at the very least, an uncharitable reading of of what's actually going on. I'll, I'll step into the, in, uh, into the gap here and say that it's back-ass words, but that's fine. Yeah, I, I I would. I was sitting here thinking the entire time. Uh, I'm I'm not a sacramental theologian, but I, I genuinely don't think a lot of the hot takes, so to speak, that we're seeing on this are about theological concepts or often no. leaning into a particular type of. And I hate this phrase, but uh, culture wars uh, sort of politicization, for lack of a better way of putting it. I don't. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't um, really. I, I don't see much more at play than that when we're talking about something like a quote unquote culture of death involved in uh, this discussion. I, I, I don't think theology is foregrounding a lot of it for some people, so to speak. No, I think that's, that's correct. And, and it, and I don't necessarily, um, I have seen on the, on the other side of the issue and what, what Eric described as an Augustinian approach, um, people may be a little bit too cavalier about, well, just don't go to mass and it's not a big deal. 
because it's precisely again to that uh, experience of absence that um, indicates a yearning or a desire that Thomas identifies as um, a condition for spiritual communion. There is no sort of just kind of generically walking around spiritually communing. Um, that's that's not adequate either. So. But I, it is interesting that you have one side speaking primarily in cultural philosophical categories and the other side trying to speak in theological categories, but also sliding into sort of uh, political sort of ways of messaging about this um, rather than really dealing with the, the theological questions that underlie the conversation. So let's let's get into that stuff then. You know, we're, we're, we keep sort of bumping up against a normative notion of spiritual communion. So. Um, Let's see if we can't uh, unpack the box, pull it apart a little bit. So where, um, so what is spiritual communion? Uh, and what, what ideas would our listeners need to have in hand in order to think uh, well, to think with rigor about the idea, and so to avoid the two extremes we've laid out? Go ahead, Joe. So. Uh, well, first, there's the whole question of the metaphysics of the real. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate to have to start there. So let's That's, start with being. <laughs> <laughs> Work your way forward from there. <laughs> this is part of the problem. You have though. three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, in lieu of going down that rabbit hole presently, I would say, I would I would direct folks to to look at the the articles in uh, the Summa that have to do with um, how one enters into communion with with Christ on the reception of the sacrament. So it's question eighty in the Tertia Par. Um, or there's a fairly and, and in English the Tertia Pars is the the third part. Thank you of the Summa Theologia or Theologica, if you prefer. Um, so the, the distinction then that Thomas makes there is a distinction between spiritual eating and sacramental eating. This would be in article one of question 80. And that, that pertains to these two aspects of our human nature, one material, um, one intellectual. And so we have a situation where, um, if, if we don't, um, take full account of our spiritual reality, we can imagine that uh, entering into communion with the church, with Christ, uh, requires uh, some physical element. It's only requires some physical element as a contingent reality related to our nature. Right? So it's just strictly contingent that Christ uh, is, is present in the sacrament um, in a way that, that uh, mediates that encounter to our physical nature. But critically for Thomas, um, the intellectual side of it, the insight, the experience, the spiritual side, again, because of our nature, is facilitated by a symbol. It's facilitated by an outward sign. So you can't just pull them apart and say, well, now we've got spiritual communion over here, and we've got sacramental communion 
both of them on their own, he says, are imperfect in that question. So that's where the tension rises because you can appeal to either side and play one off against the other. But once you do that, you're, you're misunderstanding the imperfect, imperfect character of either one by itself. So the goal is that both be knit together in this full experience of our humanity as material and, and spiritual. Well, and (laughs) no, that's helpful. You know, and, and to, uh, particularly on the side of, of what Eric has coined the Augustinian maximalism, um, you know, to, to quote Fiona Apple, when it comes to contingency and imperfection, so's everything, right? Um, Hell yeah. The the only thing that's, the only things that are distinguished by, uh, by noting that they're contingent and imperfect are creatures from the creator. and so to, to trot in either of those terms as though they can wave away, oh, but it's just contingent or it's, uh, or on the other side, right, to, to really hammer home, yeah, but it's imperfect. Um, to do either of those things in an absolutist way is, is actually to, to violate the fundamental ontological distinction that governs like Christian metaphysical thought. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you know I, I would sometimes, I would, I liked to mess with my very earnest uh, seminary students when I, when I had them. And so I would sometimes say uh, things that were, were facially controversial to them. And, and, and one of the things I would say to them occasionally is that it, it is, uh, it is in principle possible to, uh, to adore and love the Eucharist too much. And they would go white. <laughs> and then I would have to remind them, is the Eucharist the parousia of Christ? Well, no. Oh, okay. And what's the difference between those two things, those two modes of presence of Christ? Oh, okay. Um, anyway, all, all, that anecdote and, and tangent, in, uh, in fact, serves only to make the point, right, that, that you can use either of those two characteristics to end up on one of our two poles, the, the contingency right. or the imperfection. Uh, and you can, you can sort of wield them as a cudgel to end up in these, these maximalist positions. Yeah. But like um, the, so Joe, you were saying like the, um, the imperfection is on both sides, right? So you can receive like, you know, just a sign by itself is imperfect, but also so is kind of the, the spiritual side without the material. But that perfection, that imperfection's not equal, is it? Because like if I receive the sacrament, without desire without intention um i receive you know kind of none of the spirit like that that's a more how i put it i'm kind of responsible for that in a way or it's kind of a more serious i'm not entirely sure how i'm what i mean by this i'm but that's kind of a more serious issue than i cannot physically receive the sacrament but I desire and intend to receive it spiritually. And I mean, the, the teachings in the church on spiritual communion is exactly that you can. So it seems to me that the imperfection uh, between either just the physical or just the spiritual isn't an equal um, imperfection. Is, is that true? Because, because on one side, you're talking about like kind of metaphysical, like, real, like spiritual truths. And on the other hand, you're only talking about material. I'm not sure. If that's right, I'm just wondering, it seems yeah. that you couldn't have spiritual communion if that imperfection 
was equal and there wouldn't be all sorts of injunctions against thoughtlessly taking the sacrament without discerning the Lord's presence. Right, and that's, that's exactly what Thomas appeals to, right, is that, that line in 1 Corinthians where it's a question of discerning oneself. Um, and, and so one of the things that this conversation is point, pointing to is an experience that we all have in the church, of sort of haphazard Eucharistic reception by many people. It's now far be it from, from me to gainsay a person's individual devotion when they approach the sacrament. I'm not saying that, but Speaking if you're around the, the church... Speaking from the <clears throat> N of one of myself, <laughs> let's, yes. let's consider that uh, yeah. that possibility is in fact is in fact manifest in at least one instance. It's occasionally yes, in at least one instance. I'll volunteer uh, another. Yeah. So so it does happen, right? It does happen that we are creatures who are routinely distracted, and so to to approach the sacrament in perfect faith is exceedingly rare. Nevertheless, it is it is a possibility and does in fact happen. Um, but I. I I think that's helpful, Robin, to point to a sort of disproportion in the imperfections related to the um, these different sides of the equation, um, because the the perfected desire in spiritual communion, in a situation where it doesn't have access to sacramental communion, is is a different kind of a perfection, right? So there is there is a potential perfection on that side where there isn't on the other side. So you can have a perfect desire for spiritual communion, but you wouldn't you wouldn't necessarily have um, perfect sacramental communion without spiritual communion, right? right? So one is a condition of the other. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but I I don't know. Eric might be clearer on this. Uh, no, I, I that that seems right to me. Although I think it also undergirds, you know. Um, Lonergan's uh, little essay in uh, volume 19 of his collected works in early Latin theology uh, on the notion of assemble. Um, and, and, you know, he wants to, yep. Um, where uh, a, a sacrifice, an outward sacrifice is a symbol of, a, of an interior affection. And I think that that's quite operative here that uh, you intend to be united, right, to. To, to Christ in, in the Eucharist, and that this is an essential feature of uh, the spiritual act of communion. Uh, but, I, but I think, um, to, to go back to Robin's bit, I, I think this is why uh, St. Thomas ultimately, um, and this, is, uh, this is, has a little bit more, it's more explicit in like his sentences commentary, but he has this beautiful place uh, in his commentary on uh, Distinction 9 of Book 4, of the sentences of Peter Lombard, where he uh, actually tweeted it last night. Um, he says that to, uh, to eat Christ spiritually is to be incorporated into Christ. Uh, so there's, in the backdrop, you know, we haven't, we, we've talked about the spiritual effect of the Eucharist, and, and uh, John alluded to the parousia, but we haven't actually sort of said, what is the res tantum of the Eucharist? And uh, that is the spiritual effect of the Eucharist and St. Thomas. And I was really proud of my, uh, my seminarians who picked up on this right away. Uh, St. Thomas, without ever feeling the need to reconcile the two things that he says, will sometimes say that the spiritual effect of the Eucharist is the unity of the mystical body. And then other times will say that it's charity. It's love. Um, and he, he doesn't ever really, uh, that I've found yet, seen a need to say why he says, both things. And, but the reason, of course, 
is quite clear, and that is they're the same. Footnote, 1 Corinthians 13. Bingo. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the charity, and especially if, and he didn't, he didn't quite go this far, but he gets pretty close, especially if you assign it as the uh, extrinsic contingent term for the mission of the Holy Spirit. Right? Charity is the unity of the mystical body of the church. And so I think there's actually something very deeply, deeply important about Thomas connecting spiritual eating with incorporation. And so there's actually a, um, there's a series of different meanings of incorporation. And uh, in question 49, he actually notes that it's Christ's work of satisfaction on the cross that incorporates us into the body of Christ. So that's actually the first act of incorporation uh, is his atoning work on the cross. Uh, But then he notes that you can spiritually eat Christ uh, through faith and love, not within a sacramental context. So just you can be incorporated into Christ by spiritually eating him through faith and love because you're joined to him in love and you perceive or intend him in faith. Um, now, that modality of, of being incorporated into him through faith and love then comes to be at work when you have the intention through that incorporation to be baptized and to participate in the Eucharist. And so uh, he, he has this he has these distinctions that, that, that work out. So you can have a, a sacramental participation in baptism and you can have a spiritual participation in baptism through desire that parallels the sacramental participation in the Eucharist and the spiritual participation in the Eucharist. But there's some nuances that he introduces uh, to, to parse out the difference because uh, in the case of the baptism, uh, this is the beginning. This is the inauguration. This is the commencement of a spiritual life. And insofar as it is a kind of definitive spiritual regeneration, it's non-repeatable. But Eucharistic participation, insofar as it's the consummation of the spiritual life, but also our spiritual reflection, our spiritual nourishment, our food on the way, you know, so to speak. Uh, this is an this is an ongoing. Uh, sacramental and spiritual participation. And uh, it's not simply the power of Christ that is regenerating us as in baptism, but in the Eucharist, we're joined to Christ who has suffered. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a different uh, modality there in the incorporation that's taking place. So the Eucharist, I think, for St. Thomas is really about deepening the incorporation that Christ accomplishes on the cross, bequeaths to us in baptism, and then makes available to us in a special ongoing way, in kind of an active way in the Eucharist. And and I've always been struck that St. Thomas doesn't think you just receive the habit of charity as the spiritual effect of the Eucharist. He says you receive an act of charity through the Eucharist, through Eucharistic participation. Uh, I think it's really profound. I mean, it, it, so you're not just, it's not just sort of a, a kind of, if we use the distinction between active potency and passive potency, 
there's sort of a passive potency that's realized in your incorporation in baptism. But in the Eucharist, there's an active potency that's enacted because you're now doing the very thing. That is, you are loving. You're doing the very thing that animates Christ's own act of incorporation. So in receiving that incorporation in the Eucharist, you have to be active. And I think that's really the essential component uh, to spiritual communion in the case of the Eucharist. So he says you can spiritually eat Christ and you can spiritually eat this sacrament. And those are actually distinct spiritual eatings or communions for him. And they're also distinct modes of uh, incorporation. So that, that would be what I would add to, to, to uh, Joe's point. So I saw you reach for a, for a book there. Um, <laughs> what do you have in mind? Uh, just uh, the, the section in, in uh, the essay that Eric referred to in the early Latin theology, the volume on the notion of sacrifice, that you have this um, important to, to recognize and to affirm that um, these are different modes of what is numerically the same reality. Christ's attitude on the cross, cross being a symbol of that attitude, Eucharistic sacrifice being a symbol of the cross, and then our attitude being the same attitude as Christ. It, that, that's the, the reality that's underneath the Eucharist, is, is a sharing of an attitude or an intention. Um, and that, that gets back to the desire point. And that, well, um, that, that occasions for me as well. Um, the 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 identity of our attitude um, and Christ's is maybe gives away the game on on some of the some of the the reasoning on, on one extreme maybe more than the other um, but if but if the idea is uh, I've got to go get me some grace via the Eucharist. Um, for my own good, to save my ass. Um, that there, there's an incongruence between that attitude and the attitude of Christ on the cross. That's right. God's God's not playing gotcha. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so I think that you know that sort of semiotic way of thinking about it, paired to the metaphysics, uh, helps uh, helps interpret the metaphysics correctly. Right. That, that what is the what is the sort of what's the operation that uh, results from my encounter with the Eucharist? Well, it's it, concretely considered considered in terms of a kind of psychological description. It's it's some approximation of the attitude of Christ. Right. Uh, in you know, in, in the way that's proportionate to me not being the God man. And uh, and that can that's going to help govern the way you do the kind of logical control of meaning that Robin was talking about. Um, cause you, cause you can, cause you have to, um, you have to bring to bear that psychological description. Uh, and if, you, if, if when you bring it to bear the, like to do it algebraically, if the values don't match up, well then like you've, you've done the operations wrong. The logical operations, I mean. Yeah. Now that's one of the things that, that, it, that it seems to me comes across in some of these uh, commentaries on the situation is that it's there's a a sense of the individual's communion with Christ that's detached from 
reflection on the Totus Christus that, that Eric was just going through. Um, and, is, and is embedded in thinking about sacramental grace as punctiliar, momentary, contained um, events rather than uh, an ongoing uh, reality. Now, you can get too far in, in that direction to the point of this kind of Augustinian maximalism where now you just have pure spiritual communion and you never have to have sacramental. Yeah. Um, one, one of the things just, I, I find really helpful from uh, in, uh, for, in Grace and Freedom, uh, for example, in, in Lonergan, uh, I think he, I don't, I don't remember, can't remember if he uses this in the articles, but in the dissertation, he's got a passage where he's talking about um, the, uh, the sort of realization, the concretization of human liberty. Um, and that in, in God, uh, the divine liberty, like everything about God, is it sort of 100% actuality. And, uh, but human liberty, like everything else about the human, uh, has to be actualized in time and space. And so you, you have a proportion of actualization. Uh, and, and habits are a way of talking about, um, even though the acts themselves are, uh, are self-identical and discrete in, in certain ways, um, they, and, and here he, you, I can see, at least on my reading, in the background, Lonergan's thought about uh, the statistical governing the way he thinks about habits, right? That, that habits are a kind of statistical intelligibility about a person. Um, but, but statistical intelligibilities are the intelligibility that pertains to an aggregate. And so even if you can do a, a, an intelligible analysis of the discrete acts, right, you can give this kind of synchronic metaphysical analysis of reception of the Eucharist in a single instance. That single instance is embedded as one instance in an aggregate in an ongoing um, sort of frequency, right? It, it, it's, it's a kind of, it's a, that's a, a numerical way of thinking about the character. You could do, you could do other kind of qualitative rather than quantitative uh, analyses of it or, or descriptions of it. Um, but, it, but in fact, you, you have, you, you have a, you're, you're leaving intelligibility on the table if you don't consider those events as part of the aggregate of a person's spiritual life. And so investigate the intelligibility that pertains to that aggregate um, in terms of, you know, to, to use the ancient language in terms of habit, in terms of virtue, things like that. No, I think that's really important. And it's, it would be a significant improvement to a lot of contemporary sacramental theologies to introduce uh, that idea that uh, habits or things like character can be understood in terms of a statistical intelligibility. <clears throat> Which is not to say that something like a character, for example, is not either baptismal or, or priestly, which actually does ramify, both of those ramify in this particular topic as well. So we can come back to those. Um, that they're not permanent uh, because they, Thomas's understanding they are, but their permanence is not abstract or static, right? It, you could think about it in terms of the emergence of a new set of schemes of recurrence. What's well, a different Oh, sorry, Joe. Go ahead, yeah. No, it's a differentiation of consciousness, right? So right. I, I think one of the ways you can tr transpose sacramental character 
um, and uh, tested this out in a panel that, that Brian and I and Ryan did with uh, Jeremy Blackwood at WCMI a couple of years ago. But I think, you know, one of the opportunities uh, accepting, you know, this, this notion of statistical intelligibility, which means it's a real intelligibility, um, but trying to preserve something of the, uh, the traditions insistence on it being indaliable is, is if it can't be removed is, uh, I think you can understand sacramental character as a sub differentiation of the religious differentiation of consciousness. Mm. And, uh, and once that differentiation has taken place, you, you don't, um, there are certain horizons that of your conscious living that are uh, non-removable. I mean, you, mm. you, you operate in the world underneath, the, uh, according to this sub-differentiation in a way that, that doesn't go away, even if you decide that you're done, or you're just gonna walk away. You, you can't, um, to, to use the vision metaphor, you can't unsee the world um, in, this, in this Christological way uh, that has come to you. As my, as my father would say, it's like falling off a bicycle. You never forget how. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 Um, um, so I want to, we got about mm, 10, 15 minutes left. I, I'm interested in then. So, so in light of the sort of middle path we're charting on spiritual communion, I'm really curious about, so, so my uh, in-laws are, are here in town and, uh, but we're all socially distancing. We're in our own homes and uh, our, our, uh, our parish isn't ho- holding open uh, public masses, but but uh, the the priest there still celebrated the Eucharist on Sunday, and and my uh, family and my wife's extended family s- streamed the video feed of the celebration, um, and I'm I'm curious about the role of so that's not a that that mediation is not a, a sort of properly sacramental mediation, the sort of digital right. mediation, right? Um, I'm assuming, uh, but but nonetheless there's still um some of the material elements are still at play um and and can serve uh i mean i mean i keep using this word plainly a mediating function right Mm. um and so i'm curious about could we provide some framework for i think a lot of parishes are doing this are, are streaming a video feed of the celebration of the mass um and if that's available to people, and if people want to avail themselves of it, are, are, are there some, I don't want to be like practical, like tips and hints, but is there some frame, intellectual framework we might be able to give people for how to, how to think theologically about what they're doing if they sit on their couch and, and watch the Mass on their laptop screen? Well, that's a tough one, man. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's the document on... Um, media from Vatican II, Intermerifica, uh, one of its primary considerations was the broadcasting of, of masses. It, it's not a very helpful document because it's, it's, it's a moment in time and, and that time is early past. The internet. Um, yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, what do you, what do, you do? And, and, and so one of the, it, there, of course, the, the classical, uh, articulation of what makes a sacrament distinguishes between matter and form, and that the the matter in the context of Eucharistic liturgy is multiple, right? So, um, but at its apex, it is food, and then food cannot be consumed virtually. Right. Only that were the case. <laughs> um, really important. So, 
and that would be different, say, from a, I, I find it interesting, for example, that one of the things that, that hasn't seemed, to, uh, I haven't found it considered anywhere, is with the Sacrament of Reconciliation, people are doing like the drive-up uh, sacrament and the parking lot. That's actually a sacrament that could be carried out virtually because the matter of the sacrament is the, the word of absolution, right? So it's auricular. Yeah. So that, that could be done virtually. Um, you know, in an extreme situation, because there is there is the person-to-person contact is a different kind of mediation as we are all experiencing. Right we now. could imagine a, a a pandemic, or even just a, an epidemic, or even a single instance of a disease that's highly communicable and highly dangerous, right? So an airborne form of Ebola or something, right? Right. And someone right. someone wants to confess uh, because they their their end is 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 imminent, right? Having the having the priest in the next room and video conferencing between would seem permissible there yeah it would seem i mean based on the 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 parameters within which that sacrament operates presently don't they already do that for some prisoners oh do they yeah i believe that's correct they must because there's some prisoners who are never allowed to meet in the same room as another person so i'm pretty sure that that ministry already happens in that way well there you go Uh, and and even the the physical experience of anonymous uh confession which is you know, part of the, the, the revised right of reconciliation from Vatican II has never really fully been implemented. Uh, and so we still inhabit a preconciliar form of the right where you, where it's anonymous and it begins with, you know, forgive me, Father, etc. That's not in the revised right. And so already there's some confusion there about how that sacrament's supposed to work. But leaving that aside and getting back to the streaming of um, Mass, so I, I can give you a, my own personal sort of aesthetic take on that, that it has an ick factor for me. <laughs> um, but if I'm being pastoral, I think it does meet a, a real pastoral need that people, ex- that, that people have to have some simulacrum of liturgy. And it, at that level, it's the liturgical, it's the, it's the ritualized element of it. Um, to, it, the same way that we might watch, for example, um, theater. Right? So you might, you might watch a, a Shakespeare production that's streamed live. Right? So there's, there's some way in which we participate in those kinds of dramatic actions. But I would, I would hesitate to, to suggest that a streamed um, mass is really participation in the mass, except at this level of spiritual communion, which could be had without streaming. Right? So I think the streaming and the visual um, viewing of the thing is distinct from spiritual communion. But but would, I mean, wouldn't it be just phenomenologically, even if it's subsacramental, um, like helpful? Like I'm sitting in my living room. I mean, hopefully you're not sitting. (laughs) Well, depending, yeah, depending on where we are. Um, But I'm in my I'm in my living room with my family. I mean, would it be would it be better for us to do to to say the liturgy of the hours as a family than to do that? Uh, Are they ought we have them in in uh, should these things be had in concert with each other? Um, It just seems phenomenologically like the the. If if desire 
is if desire is is intended in a word and words are sort of broadly phantasmatic um then then might might not the images be of some some aid in the in the intentional Absolutely. act of spiritual communion and I just Absolutely. just to c- carry forward that phenomenological example why are we using video right now because this video isn't going to end up on the the final podcast version uh but so my my video cut out a minute ago because my internet connection is less than ideal at the moment i i think there was something lost potentially and if, if all of your videos were to go out at this exact juncture i do think that this conversation would lose something for that uh, so I think phenomenologically, that's a point worth considering. No, no one who's listening to this podcast, whenever it ends up getting uploaded, can see the ways we're interacting visually with each other. Uh, but like uh, Joe, when when your son walked in earlier and put his head on your shoulder, it was adorable, and I was I was trying not to crack up. It was really sweet. I I actually think that adds something to the communion of our interaction currently. I, that's just another wrinkle to throw in there because obviously it's only analogous relative to something like sacramental participation, but it, it's what I've been wondering about for the past five or 10 minutes. But, and I think that maybe some of it is that we generally still conceive of the Eucharist in 13th century metaphysical terms. Like there's no, what, like, and of course I don't know Lonergan's stuff on Sacrament Eucharist like at fight. all, but, um, but what about the turn to the subject? Because you were talking about the material of communion is something you eat, but there's also the material of the human person as they sit in the pew, as they smell the incense, as they hear the bells, as they kneel and sit and stand and listen to the cantor and hear the prayers spoken by the priest and, and, and join along either verbally or, or silently in their hearts that turn the attention of each person and the desire towards then the eating of that food. And that's right, more yeah. than just a spiritual thing that happens. I mean, Absolutely. that's why, right? That's why we hear, that's why we say along with the words, that's why we have bells to wake us up. That's why we have smell. Um, incense is a distraction. I love it. I hate it. (laughs) Um, and so like, I think the problem is where I'd be like, well, you can't eat the food. Therefore the sign isn't there. Like when you participate in the mass, because it's been, yeah, yeah. Okay. But when you participate in the mass digitally, I think you can at least consider what is happening through the matter of the person through the ways that the matter is still hot. So orally, um, right. Like what you're hearing what you're saying, the postures of your body, and that also human beings are incredibly visual people, right? That's why drama always works for us. Your eye follows movement. It intends you towards something. So I think that there's, there's an element to the Eucharist in the matter of the human being that isn't maybe fully explored in this area, or maybe it is, and I don't know that literature. That's more likely. You know, so when you, I think there is something different in participating in the streamed mass of my, you know, of church on actually daily at our church, um, as opposed to just basically, yeah, praying morning, evening prayer, doing the hours or something on our own or, or, and then it's hard to do spiritual communion on your own if you've never done it before and, and to have the guidance of that. So I think that there is something there. I'm just not quite sure how to express it. And I think it is actually has to do with matter. And metaphysics, not just kind of phenomenology, 
phenomenologically, but there's something about the subject who who receives communion that's part of that. And, and I'm not, anyways. Have we pummeled you into that. submission? Are you I'm ready to endure? I'm exploring, John. Have we, have we, have we, uh, have we t- twisted your arm? Are you going to, are you going to endorse streaming masses now, guys? <laughs> well, I don't, I didn't hear anything that Robin said or, or Brian said that, that contradicted anything that Joe said. I mean, no, I, I'm just throwing in wrinkles. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I heard, I heard Joe affirm that, mm-hmm. and I would agree with him that, that yeah, these can be aids, these can be tools. Um, but I, I think it is important to note two things. First of all, uh, the completion of the Eucharistic sacrament is unique, at least on a, on a Thomistic, and I think I would be, be prepared at least based on um, Trent and, um, and the Second Vatican Council to say on a, on a Catholic understanding. But the Eucharist is unique because it's completed in the words of consecration. And um, while the, um, you know, the the presence of Christ substantially in the Eucharist means that faithful are called to participate in him spiritually and sacramentally. Uh, nevertheless, that's, that's very different from any of the other sacraments. All the other sacraments for their completion requires the participation of the recipient. So that's just sort of the sacramental qualification that I would add to what I agree with what Robin was saying is that, yeah, there is something about the mode of the recipient, uh, but uh, like I was saying earlier, it's not just the power of Christ that is present in the Eucharist. It is Christ himself who is present in the Eucharist, and the Christ who died on the cross, past tense, that's present in the Eucharist, and who is glorified and sitting at the right hand of the Father who is present in the Eucharist. And he's the one that calls us to that spiritual communion and and so, uh, I, I mean, I hear Joe saying, sure, use the aids. They're going to help you do that. But, you know, I, I, I noticed, um, I was actually talking a little bit to Luke Tony about this yesterday. I searched every single liturgical book and prayer book that I had for a prayer for an act of spiritual communion. Mm. I, I can find one, right? And Did you look in the BCP? What, what's that? Did you look <laughs> in the BCP? That's very interesting, right? Because... Your tradition is probably going to have that, right? So, but, but it's different from the prayers before Mass or the prayers after Mass or the prayers before the altar, right? Um, and even different, I think, than the prayer of like humble access and all those kinds of things, right? The closest thing I could find was the um, obsecrote, where you're uniting yourself to the passion of Christ. But that would be an example, not of spiritually eating the sacrament, but of spiritually eating Christ, at least on Thomas's distinction. So, you know, when um, we did our liturgy of the word uh, in, in our house, and again, I can only speak from sort of my personal experience. Um, uh, once we completed the liturgy of the word, you know, I, I spontaneously composed a prayer to focus everybody's attention as at each age appropriate level yeah. <laughs> on on participating, right? And and I think this is where, you know, Thomas's language of, of, of votum, of intention is really important. And uh, like I was noting before we started, it it's the same word that he uses to discuss religious vows. So there's a promise that's involved in spiritual communion. Like you are, you're deliberating. So there's an, there's an act of, of deliberative will. And then there's an intention of the will 
But then there's a promise to make good on the intention. I think and, that's really helpful. And, and so when, when I engage in this, I'm actually committing to participate sacramentally eventually, right? Like when I have the opportunity, I will complete the sacramental act. I will, I will actually, and this is another meaning of incorporation, I will embody my spiritual communion as soon as I am, am able to do so. I think that's the, that's the further arc. I think that's what preserves the distance. It preserves the absence. It preserves the fact that this is weird and not normative. And yet also says, uh, I intend to be one with the church, the sacrifice of the church, be one with the act of my priests, be one with the act of all the faithful throughout the whole world. And, uh, and, and as I was sort of thinking through, what should I say in this prayer? Like, what should be included in this prayer, right? I made sure that I included things like the local sacrifice that I knew my priest was making that day, all the local sacrifices that I knew all the priests were making in my diocese, but then also throughout the whole world mm-hmm. that, that I knew was being celebrated and that my family, through this intentional act of prayer, uh, sought to be joined to through a spiritual act of communion. That's great. I think that's I think that's really helpful, Eric. Thank you. You're you're, you're going to really like the BCP prayer, prayer then, which begins <laughs> with with discussing the union of the faithful at every altar in the church. Well, there we go. Um, Joe, unless there's something you want to tack on to that, is there anything you want to you want to add to that before we wrap up? We're running just just at the end of our time here. Just very quickly, I think Eric, that's really helpful, and and um, the notion of a vow, I think, or a promise is is important here because that helps us to understand that uh, spiritual communion and sacramental communion are properly ordered to one another, each to the other. Sacramental communion intends spiritual communion, and spiritual communion intends sacramental communion. And to try to pull them apart is a mistake. And, and, and I'll add just very briefly as well, that I think the futurity of it um, is also an expression of hope. Yes. Right. Absolutely. Um, that this is is to 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 commit to a return to the normal situation um, is is an expression that this is not this is not the new normal. We're not stuck here, um, but to to have faith um, that there's that God is uh, God will provide um, that opportunity. And that I mean that points to the eschatological futurity that should be the horizon for any Eucharistic conversation. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a nice yeah. sort of general general uh, instance of that specific one. Yeah, yeah. All right, I'm going to wrap us up. Thank you both so much for being with us. Uh, thank you for these sort of in- helpful intellectual tools to chart this middle path on this uh, suddenly fraught question. Uh, if you want to tweet at us, you can find us on Twitter at SystematicPod. If you want to send us an email, systematicallypodcast@gmail.com. If you want to help support the show, Patreon.com/systematically, and um, Good luck as you socially distance and isolate. We're going to be under a, uh, under a shelter in place order here in Austin here pretty soon. So things are going to get kind of serious in a minute. Um, we're thinking of you. Um, we got more content coming for you. So if you're, if you're bored off your gourd or if you just need to escape from your toddlers for a while, um, we're, we're going to try and be here for you. It's a, it's a way that helps us feel helpful. So um, thanks for listening and go out there and be responsible. <laughs>